Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Redemption Elder Justin Wolgamuth. Hey everybody. We are in chapter 4. Uh, and as we continue this trek through Ecclesiastes, uh, we come across these passages on oppression and pain and suffering, and ultimately whether it's worth it to be alive. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is sort of like a philosophical take, a philosophical exploration of life. It comes off the heels of the book of Proverbs, which is um, the Bible's more optimistic and instructional wisdom. Proverbs tends to think that if you do things well and if you raise your children right, if you manage your money and treat others with respect, then for the most part, suffering is going to avoid you. It'll leave you alone. The absence of wisdom or foolishness is what this is called, and ultimately it's foolishness that brings bad luck and pain and suffering. And then Ecclesiastes comes along, and it's sort of balancing things out. Ecclesiastes says, you know, sure, it's, it's good to be wise. It's good to use sound judgment. But never think that things are too much in your control. Unlike the Proverbs, you'll, you'll hear things like, you know, you can save your money, and then the economy can crash. You can build a business with your blood, sweat, and tears, and then you sell it or you hand it off to the next generation, and they squander it away. You can do great things. You can love your family well. You can be self-actualized. You can try to create a legacy. But within a generation or two, you will be forgotten. It would be possible to think that Ecclesiastes is maybe too harsh or mean and arguably gets too much joy out of bursting the bubble of life's meaning. But I do think it's important and better to think of the book as somewhat of a reality check. It is saying, you know, look, there are important things to get right. There are important things to do well. and It's good to be righteous. But don't ever think that you have reality too under your control. We have this refrain, meaningless, meaningless, um, sometimes vanity. Some translators have suggested that meaningless is something like a vapor or you know, fleeting mist, this thing that refuses to be <coughs> refuses to be grasped. It's not exactly saying that there is no meaning, though arguably it might be. Um, but it's accurately depicting, I think, what it feels like to be a person in a difficult world. Making sense of our experience while we are in it is like trying to grab a hold of the fog. It doesn't want to be grasped. It doesn't seem to gain us anything. It can't be taken hold of and reasoned with. And so often it feels like life is just happening to us or happening around us. It can't be wrestled to the ground and controlled. Somehow or somewhere, or some way, the unexpected thing is going to happen. And frankly, probably the scary and heartbreaking thing somewhere is going to happen. 
So we have that context for what Ecclesiastes is doing. Uh, and then we come across this passage on suffering. I have a slide here, Kyle. So, Ecclesiastes 1 through 3. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So at this point in the book's survey of the world and how to live, we take on suffering and, and we get to despair. It gets pretty dark here for a second. We see the speaker wonder if it's better to be dead than to be alive. At least then the pain would be over. But even that might not be enough because you still had to see it. So maybe it's better to just not have been at all. Have you been in this place? I won't ask us to raise our hands or go into it now. Um, but I know that many of us have been. Maybe some of us are there right now. In Elders, we've discussed uh, what we see in redemption, what are some things that we think redemption does well. And my contribution was that we are good at sad and weird. I think those are two things that we could char be characterized as, both sad people and you know, kind of weird people. We have this in our midst. We, we know this to be true. You know, myself and others have dealt with depression um, we've had deep grief, we've had confusion, tragedies near and far. We've had suicidal thoughts, we've had trauma, chronic illness, overwhelming anxiety, physical discomfort. Frankly, life can force us to feel like it would be better to not have been. I think it's interesting and really pretty amazing that the Bible includes this depiction of what it sometimes feels like to be a person. It's really a remarkable thing for Scripture to include, the despair of humanity. And I also think it's something that American Christianity could use a bit more of. We don't often hear that life can include immense heartbreak and, and the feeling like you can't do it anymore. I remember being 18 years old when I learned that uh, the book of Lamentations exists. I saw it, uh, a verse from it, um, like painted on a wall at a Christian camp. And I was like, what's this book? I, I was questioning if I was at a Christian camp. But we have this, we have a whole book on lamenting in our sacred text. It's, it's pretty interesting. And it's worth asking why the Bible would include this kind of thing. Why include these voices that are heavy and full of despair and sad? I think maybe there's a way that if we can be more in tune with the suffering in our lives and around us, 
we can still feel like God is a part of it. So when I think of suffering, um, and I, you know, I, I, Ian asked me if I would do the suffering sermon, uh, a close friend of mine came to mind. Uh, this friend is, he suffered more than anybody that I know personally. Um, and as I've walked with him for, you know, over five years, of, through some of the worst imaginable things that I can think of, he's had years of complex trauma and grief and repeated battles with suicide, and um, I've been forced to, to bring any of my thoughts about suffering back to my friend. I've had to ask, does my view of God, if I'm going to hold one, does it have room to hold this? Is my worldview truly accounting for how hard life can get? Maybe you know people like this, maybe you are that person. So, as I said, when I prepared this message, I had to consider what's it gonna sound like to those ears? I'm sometimes in danger of getting to a place of romanticizing pain and seeing it as some sort of beautiful and important thing. I actually um, wrote my senior project on death and uh, it's kind of a creative nonfiction take personal essays on the ideas of the end and meaning in it. And it's not, it's not terrible, but. <laughs> so even talking about this today, I felt this tension to veer into that kind of thing that I think Ecclesiastes doesn't want me to do. It doesn't want me to look on the bright side You know, I want to give a poetic and inspiring explanation of suffering and what it might be doing and offer some redemptive hope in it. And then I think, would that work for my friend? Would it work for the abused? Would it work for the oppressed with no comforter? So again and again, I have to think, at least in those times when suffering is most painful, trying to explain why it's happening is only going to hurt. Interestingly, Ecclesiastes, throughout the whole book, really doesn't give much explanation for suffering. It's more of a description. There are other relevant passages in the Bible for explaining suffering or informing how we think about it in the scope of larger things, but we don't get it here. Ecclesiastes feels like it's telling me to truly feel and understand the gravity of suffering. There's got to be a way that actually letting suffering settle deeply into our hearts actually puts us in a position to meet God. I think this book wants us to consider the experience of suffering rather than our thoughts about it. It's like looking at how to suffer in the fog. So with that, I have two directions to go for suffering in the fog. One of them is, I think, more hopeful. And if that one works for you today, then that's, that's good. Um, the other one is less hopeful. 
And today, if that's the one that lines up more, that's okay as well. So first, we have the hopeful. <clears throat> as many of you know, maybe all of you know, I, I work as a counselor, and I've had a lot of experiences now sitting with people who are suffering. And I've seen some interesting things happen when life seems to break. You know, you lose a job that brought a lot of meaning, or your marriage is tense and uncomfortable. Somebody near you dies, and it brings everything else in your life into question. Counseling is filled with these inciting incidents that drive people to therapy, and it's usually suffering-related. And even if it's not, we usually find that suffering is there somewhere, and it continues to affect us. I found it hopeful in my own life and in the lives of others that I walk with in suffering to see it as a lens to, sorry, see it through the lens of an invitation. I have another slide here. Richard Rohr says this great quote, there are only two major paths by which the human soul comes to God, the path of great love and the one of great suffering. Both finally come down to great suffering because if we love anything greatly, we will eventually suffer for it. I've also seen different renditions of this quote, and I think he kind of reuses it in different settings. Um, but I've seen it, the two paths that the human soul has to transformation. <clears throat> Suffering hits us where we're vulnerable. And in that way, it offers us a path to God. I think it takes some practice to believe that, that suffering and vulnerability is a path to God. But it's probably something like hope to believe that God is where the suffering is. This might be what Jesus was getting at when he said, blessed are those who mourn. So pain hits and we're weak and confused and we're fatigued. Often the feeling that we were in relative control of our lives passes away. Our circumstances punch us in the gut and we're invited to take on a new posture. We can examine our lives in new ways. We might see what's important to us. We might actually see what's unimportant to us. We see who was there for us in times of need and who wasn't. If we're lucky, pain might even give us deeper wells of compassion and empathy for other people suffering around us. I've seen this in some of my clients who they've gone through their lives generally unthinkingly, kind of doing what was expected of them by parents or by culture or external forces. These people can go through life generally unbothered, um, but also not very deep. And it's not really a virtue to be deep in and of itself, but by this I mean just as these people's bad experiences of sadness and pain are muted and thin, their good experiences of joy and thanksgiving are also pretty, pretty muted and pretty thin. And then suffering hits and it disrupts the autopilot. The way of pain invites them into more intentionality and presence. I've seen pain and suffering lead clients to new efforts to build relationships with their children, 
or set boundaries at work to be more present at home. Suffering has a way, if we let it, of building us out and, and deepening us. It opens us up to the world. And it gives a new lens to God and ourselves. It can help us see the people that we run into at Wawa differently, or sit in the DMV line with more patience and curiosity and, and love. So there's suffering as an invitation. And that's our more hopeful item. And now for the less hopeful. <clears throat> I'm going to go with the claim, and I think Ecclesiastes is pointing at it, that you can't find the meaning in your suffering. What's the big question that people ask and ask God in the face of suffering? It's why. Why did it happen? Why does it have to feel like this? Why was it me and not somebody else? It feels like suffering would be more manageable if we could get more of a detailed description of how it fits into the larger plan. But I think what's also true that is that in the face of the biggest suffering, any answer is not going to feel like enough. And even if it were enough, it doesn't change what we lost or what the thing is. Whatever the suffering affected. This is one of the first things that counseling training programs have to work with and new counselors. You know, counselors are training people, or are caring people, and that care can drive counselors to offer ideas to about what good end might be coming with suffering. Uh, in Christian settings, I call this the Jesus juke. The Jesus juke allows us to easily sidestep suffering and bring some kind of platitude about how all things work for good or you know, maybe even aren't as bad as they seem. Have you received one of these before? you gotten a Jesus juke before? It can be said with the best of intentions. It can be very well meant, but it usually comes across as hollow and flimsy. And really, the Jesus juke ends up not looking much like Jesus. So, Ecclesiastes, it offers us no Jesus juke. The oppressed in verse 1 have no comforter. You know, he says it twice to emphasize the point. They have no comforter. We can talk at a different time about how suffering might fit into the larger narrative of God's redemption. I think those are, there are important thoughts there and room for faith, but we don't have it here. So instead, counselors are trained to do something else. They refrain from trying, to, trying too hard to make sense of the suffering and offer the meaning of it, because that really only adds up at only ends up adding to the pain. Instead, counselors are trained in empathy. And empathy is to feel with the person what they are feeling. Empathy enters into 
suffering with the person. And it conveys in the best way that you can that their experience must be so incredibly difficult. And ultimately, you just be there with them. You might have ideas of what might get them out of this or what might change their circumstances or what healthy steps forward might look like. But first, you're just in it. You're just there. I think we're directed in this direction in chapter 4. I have one other slide. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So in the, the, the context of suffering, we are given this portrayal of one helping another, and better yet, three people helping one another. Suffering happens, and the best thing you can do is just be there. You can help out, you can offer a kind word, as long as it's not a Jesus truth. You can make a meal, but first and foremost, you have to be there in presence and in spirit. Empathy is our best bet for sitting with people in suffering. So that's it for sitting with someone in suffering. But how about the sufferer? I think again of my friend. How about him? I think here is where he might run the risk of romanticizing suffering. But I'm going to try to thread a needle. When you suffer, I think you just sort of have to feel the ache. You have to feel the ache. It's just part of being a person. or the ache that comes with suffering that goes unprocessed only sticks around under the surface. It has to hurt. To think that it can't or it shouldn't actually in a way doesn't do your suffering justice. So you have to be fair to your pain. And you have to give it the space it needs. I think of uh, Gary actually told me once I was in somewhat of a depressive season and felt like several weeks where I just didn't have it and I just was feeling crappy. And in talking with Gary, he gave me the wording that he said, it sounds like you kind of just need to befriend your depression. And that was confusing. Um, I didn't really want to befriend it. I didn't, want it. I didn't want it to stick around. But there was this idea that all of that resisting and all of that fighting against and all of that wishing that it wasn't here actually has a way of just kind of building it up. 
And so you kind of just have to let it be there. You kind of just have to feel the ache. You know, we have to put things in place to take care of ourselves and, and process through pain. But it's going to be there. It's not going to go anywhere unless it's felt and it's digested. And you have to face it somehow. Face it with support. Face it with people that care about you. Face it with a therapist. I have room on my case, Lord. But do it as best you can. For it's truly a courageous thing to face the ache. And as you ache, consider this inkling of hope. That the ache doesn't just seem to stop with itself. The ache seems to point somewhere. Hurting points to things, to the fact that things aren't as they should be. It shows us that we long for some other condition, some better condition where hurting doesn't happen. We can't always feel the hope for better things. And better things might be at a later time in life when it doesn't hurt so badly, or, or even the faith that God will someday wipe the tears from our eyes in new creation. This is where I think it's a practice. But maybe through the ache, we can find that the slightest bit of comfort is there, that maybe it's not supposed to be this way. So, those are my two points. Ecclesiastes points us in this way of suffering in the fog. Suffering can be an invitation to a new way of life. And you can't find the meaning of your suffering. You can only know the ache. And try to believe that God is where the suffering is. That God can be found in the suffering. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.